Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigan Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Grace Beverly joins me on the podcast. She is an entrepreneur, a brand founder, an influencer, an author, and an Oxford University graduate. And in her early 20s, she was featured in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. And she also has two wildly successful brands, Tala and Shreddy, under her belt. Grace's new book, Working Hard, Hardly Working, is a really thoughtful look at these two aspects of our lives that we're supposed to be really good at. On the one hand, we need to be working hard, which can look like working long hours, putting in more hours than perhaps you're paid for and then not being able to enjoy your social life because you guessed it you're working taking on more than one job because you're a hustler maybe even having a side hustle and then on the other hand there's this idea that we need to be hardly working aware of our circadian rhythms and the importance of a good night's sleep leaning into self-care taking weekends off and engaging in at least one digital detox it's such a clash of ideas And how to live either of those things completely or well is a real challenge. And if we're being bombarded by messaging that tells us to always be working and to never be working, you can see why it can all get very, very confusing. But in her book, Grace really lays this all out, examines it, and really offers some very, very helpful advice about how to move forward with purpose whilst working hard, but also whilst hardly working. In this episode, Grace and I discuss the reductive binary of this idea of work-life balance, the damage done by the conflicting messages of this hustling and working versus resting and relaxing, how burnout and overstretching yourself can be seen as badges of honour in the current framework of what we think work looks like, how the concept of hard work has changed completely in the last few decades, making overworking easier than it has ever been before, what she learned from time spent in corporate and what she does and doesn't apply from it in her own businesses, the way we make work and success look aspirational, yet it's so far removed from the reality. Why even a job you love can and maybe should feel like a chore at times because that's no bad thing. Success and why it's not a destination, but a course that you're constantly having to correct and reassess. The value in internalizing your success. I particularly enjoyed her take on this, how to appropriately delegate and so, so much more. So um, 
Please do enjoy this conversation with Grace Beverly and the link to the book, which is a strong recommend for me, will be in the show notes, as are the links to Grace and Tala and Shreddy and everything else that we discuss in this episode. But for now, please do join me in welcoming Grace Beverly onto The Emma Gunn Show. <laughs> okay, well, Grace Beverly, welcome to the podcast. It's so wonderful to have you here. You're an author, you're an entrepreneur, you're a business owner, you're a founder, you are somebody who knows a lot about business. And this, uh, well, welcome, first of all. Thank you. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And you do, you've written this amazing book called Working Hard, Hardly Working. And it forced me to basically say, I have had the opportunity in my career to have learned to learn these lessons. And I did mm. not. You had the, the, I don't know, the perspective or you were able to take a step back, even when you were living in the middle of these things, to basically assess constantly in order to improve and navigate a really competitive space sort of with grace. No pun intended. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, the, the pun's taken well anyway. Um, but but yeah, and I, th I think part of it as well is, you know, I was given the good fortune and kind of like blessing of being able to spend a few months thinking entirely about this. Obviously, I was running the companies outside of that. But, you know, a lot of people have read the book and said like, God, this is everything I wanted to say, but, you know, couldn't say or couldn't put into words or whatever it might be. And it's not necessarily that I could. It was also the fact that, you know, I, I was given that time to do that and to set that aside and to be um, to be trusted with that kind of conversation. So I think that comes into it, too. And that's why I took it so seriously as something that, you know, if I'm being given this to talk about, especially as someone who is, you know, kind of very much within the space of a lot of these things I was talking about within social media and the the relationship between productivity and self-worth and the way that is projected online and all of these things if I was trusted with that then you know I thought that it was very important to kind of really try and do that justice and to just delve in completely to what that meant to me but also what I saw that meant to other people um and yeah I'm, I'm just so happy that it's been received in the way it has it's been I mean it's been an absolute dream come true to be honest Oh, well, it, it, quite rightly so, because basically working hard, hardly working, correct me if I'm wrong, it's essentially these two ideas that are held up as being ideals, but that are polar opposites. So this idea of being mm -hmm. a hustler, having a side hustle, being at work 24-7, constantly working, like showing the world constantly how much you're grinding, at the same time as we have this messaging that has never been as strong as it is now of self-care, rest, relaxation, take mm. breaks, and it's just... It, it almost feels, and you examine this in the book, you can't lean into either. At yeah, the same or time. you're, or I mean, you've understand, you've understood it incredibly well, and that's, I mean, that's the thing. It's that we're forced to identify with one or the other. This idea of kind of productivity or self care, or working hard or hardly working. You're forced to kind of identify with one and say you're really good at one, but also the way that we see balance nowadays and this kind of reductive binary of work life balance makes us also have to be amazing at both. So it's kind of like you have to choose which camp you're in. You have to choose whether you're a hustler or whether you're, you care about the rest of your life or whether you care about work fulfillment or self-fulfillment. And, and you're forced into one of those. But also, if you're not being seen to ace both, you're automatically seen to not have this idea of balance or not be... I mean, it's just not sellable. It's not what we want to see. We want to see someone who, you know, that when I'll be commended for the fact that I kind of like go out the weekend and people being like oh my god I can't believe you do both and it's like well I mean when I'm doing more of one then I have to do less of the other and it, you know it's always give or take so 
that's what I really wanted to examine because I felt like you could never win with either of those. You were either telling people to work hard and you were being harsh and not taking into account the fact that people need self-care and rest and all of that. Or you were telling people to rest and all of that and not confronting the fact that people need to work and people need to, you know, people want to do well. And actually the reality is we have to start considering both as one and as two sides of the same coin and the fact that you can't have rest without productivity and vice versa. Um, and kind of look at that all as one. And I felt like the conversation was missing that, uh, not everywhere, but in most places. Uh, and that's what I really wanted to confront for myself as well as other people. And I love the fact that throughout the book, you reference this sort of snowflakey, you, you sometimes say, I'm screaming snowflake at my reflection in my laptop. But I enjoy the fact that you acknowledge that also this idea of rest has become to be something almost like, oh, for the week or for that generation, mm. you need to, and that's not accurate. No, and I think the thing is, that, you know, I, I was hyper aware within the book that both, you know, although it's very much aimed at the Gen, at the Gen Z millennial working bracket, I've had so many, so many messages from people who have been outside of that, who've read it because they want to understand people within their organization or they want to, you know, understand the way the working world has changes or understand their children. Um, and actually, you know, I was so aware that that was going to be the case because, you know, the second you write something saying like, oh, we're burnt out, then it's like, they don't know the meaning of hard work, you know, all of this. And it's like, okay, but hard work has changed completely in its presentation, in what needs to be upheld, in its perpetuation of kind of constantly always on this idea of like interconnectivity between, you know, work and always working, if you've even got your phone there, that we kind of need to step back and be like, okay, let's just <laughs> probably stop calling each other names from the off, because there's always going to be an element of that. And I'm sure parts of me are hugely snowflakey in the like main sense of the term. But that's not the productive part of the conversation. That's not constructive. And what I wanted to do was kind of take it back and say, okay, you know, I can scream snowflake at myself, but I also can within that recognize the fact that working now, the opportunity cost of not working or the idea of rest has become, or the idea of anything that is not working has become this big kind of idea of failure or idea that you're lazy or idea that you know because you can do anything and because we can make money from absolutely everything now that the opportunity cost of not working is suddenly really really high so that's what I kind of wanted to look at and I wanted to look at it in the way where it's kind of like yeah you may call me a snowflake and maybe I am but at the same time I'm still having a valid conversation and if you want to leave yourself out of that by just yelling that this isn't true and this isn't the way things work then that's fine but that's not what we're talking about in this moment. Mm. And I guess as well, because of the position that you're in, business owner, author, you've got all of these accolades, if you like, these very, uh, these trophies of success that are mm. badges of honour that you have to an extent. A lot of people, especially because you're a female, because of your age, might think, well, obviously she's had to just grind really, really hard, or there's a huge amount of privilege mm. there. And I think it's yeah. really important to hear your voice, which is there has been a lot of hard work. But I've had to understand that in order to maximize that work, I have to, as you say, the other side of the coin, lean mm. into the rest. And also constant um, reappraisal, which I thought yeah. was really interesting and, in the book. Well, well, that's the thing. There, there was a lot of this book that was written for me entirely selfishly. And it was you know, great that I was basically sponsored to do that kind of self-discovery. Um, but, you know, that was part of it as well, because if I 
had a whole year where I kind of just like every single person I looked at I thought you know I'm not as successful as them or I'm not on the flip side I'm wasting my 20s because they're having fun and I'm working really hard and I've got myself into this position where I can't just step back from that there are 50 people who rely on me for their income and salary and you know all of these like responsibilities but then I'm not working hard enough and I'm not doing all of this and if I can sit there and think that with as you say these kind of like badges of honor and these accolades and these things that these labels that I'm able to put in my bio and do put in my bio then lots of other people will be having this kind of not necessarily problem, but this idea of comparison and warped view of success as well. Um, and what I really wanted to do within that was to create a kind of examination where I was both examining the way that we now have changed the way we see success as a society um, or as a culture uh, where we see success as a form of, you know, it's a form of comparison. It's always relative it's always looking at other people um and also for myself to be able to put everything out there where I was like you know it was really important for me within that as well to have sections where I was like this is everything I do have and that I was given straight up yeah. and that I you know that is not it doesn't come into the, the aspect of hard work you can see I work hard you can see my work ethic like I'm I'm not going to be shouting at anyone but there's other things as well that I need to contextualize because otherwise the whole idea of success is without contextualization online. You see someone post about something, you don't see the teams behind it, you don't see the privileges, you don't see the hours worked, you see kind of, you see just that. And, and we have to start contextualizing better. And that for me was really important because I just thought like, how fucking annoying if I sit here and write a book being like, this is how I work hard. And it's like, okay, you haven't given any of the context, you haven't given any of the things that made it a lot easier for you. You have just looked at things and been like five productivity tips from you know me and that's just not what I wanted to do at all so um so yeah that was kind of part of the whole way I was trying to address it and I mean some people will probably think I didn't do it well some people think I did do it well whatever it might be but for me that was important for me to be happy with my addressing of that context I thought you did it really well and it really struck me that it was almost uh there's a brilliant negotiation technique which is present to the person in front of you the things that they might criticize you for and you take the sting out of the tail <laughs> you, you take you take their ability away from them to attack you with it and I feel like when you present these are my privileges this is what I had I, I felt very much that when I then went forward I was I, I very much was like on your team like I get it I, and I appreciate that you got it too Mm. Well, I mean, I just think I, I think it's really important. And there's always more to do as well. And there's always more to say. And every time that, you know, every time I make an announcement or say like this, that and the other, I try, I try and be really clear about, you know, I think people can see also on the flip side, kind of the, the sacrifices within this, you know, this work or whatever but that contextualization and that privilege and all of that is a huge part. And I mean, I mean, it would just be completely naive and, I mean, just ridiculous not to acknowledge that and not to try and continually acknowledge that as well. It's not something that now I've done. <laughs> I just leave that in kind of think, you know, whatever. Um, but there's also never a right way to do it. And there's never a, you know, there is, so um, I... Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you think I did it well. <laughs> no, I do. But I wanted also to go back a little bit because I think you acknowledge the things that have worked in your favour. But one thing I was curious about was the example that was set for you, if there was one, 
that meant that you had this way of looking at the world and you had this way of looking at business and at such a young age wanted to get into business because I obviously read the book through my own experience and my models were very much um I didn't know about investing. I, I I knew that you had to work hard to do well and you had to work up the ladder. I had very much that kind of 80s Wall Street kind of business mm. yeah. blueprint, if you like. But I wondered what the, the stages before it all began were that you were modeled growing up that meant that you've become Grace Beverly. Um, I think that, so everything I know about things like investing and the way businesses work has been I mean, pretty much entirely accumulated over the last four and a half years. So I started my first business four and a half years ago. And, and even the first year of that, I mean, I didn't treat it entirely as a business. In the, I mean, I d- didn't treat it anywhere near what I would treat it now because it was kind of like, oh, let's produce this. Okay, it works. Let's do more. Or it doesn't work. Let's do less. Uh, and it was kind of very much just that. And because it was digital products as well, there didn't need to be a, any upfront cost. So, you know, that's why I originally started it. I kind of thought, great, easy monetization, um, you know, no marginal cost for the products because they're digital. I can easily do this while I'm at university. It just kind of sits there. The digital downloads go out to people. I just help with the customer service. Um, and, and, you know, with creating in that community and all of that um so all of what I've learned in terms of actual like entrepreneurship has been over the past years I'd, I'd actually I'd probably say more like three years because before that point it's not fair to say so I was like digesting all of these things I was just being like wow cool <laughs> this does well um and then you know prior to that I worked for um when I was 18 to 19 I had a 13 month internship at IBM that was just through there they do this school leaver type future scheme um which anyone can apply for it's based on people who either don't want to go to university or you can do it as a gap year scheme and it's the equivalent to kind of a third year in industry if you do a business course, but it's just before. So I um, I wanted to do that because I particularly wanted to get an experience because I, th- I had that view, I had that corporate is success. I need to work in an office, wear heels and a pencil skirt, and that's what success will look like to me. And so, um, so yeah, I, I kind of did that for a year. I really did not like it, um, but I think part of that was due to the fact that it was, I mean, Obviously, it was very much an entry level job. I don't think, you know, we have this expectation now that you'll go into some entry level job and you'll love it and it will fulfill your purpose and all of that. And I'm sorry, but my purpose is not reporting um, and <laughs> kind of putting things into Excel and, and all of that. Um, so for, for, for me, that, you know, it taught me a lot about discipline, hard work, the way you interact with other people within an organization, um, bureaucracy in big organizations, a lot of those kind of things that taught me. Um, but I wouldn't say it taught me a lot about entrepreneurship at all, apart from the fact that I was, you know, trying to grow my platforms outside of that. So on the weekends would be cooking 20 recipes and filming 10 workouts and all of that to put out over the next week. Um, so, so, yeah, that was kind of my I'd say it's been a real baptism of fire over the past few years, actually. Um, I, it wasn't that I kind of learned, you know, my, my dad's self-employed, for example. So technically he had a business that was him. Um, but we didn't we didn't really talk about that we work together now um which is fantastic and one of the best things i've ever done but um but you know actually it's been over the past years that i've been like oh this is how business works okay cool let's go with that um and and so i think it, what's important as well is recognizing that you don't need to have um you know as i say there have been huge privileges that i've been um subject to and the the, pr- the privilege of kind of being available to pursue an entrepreneurial avenue rather than a part-time job while i was at university is one of them um but also you don't 
I don't I really don't think you need some formalized business education and I continually thought you did I applied for business school out of um, university and I was going to go there because I felt like I needed to be doing it and everyone who I talked to was like you're doing it so you don't need to go to business school um and so so yeah it's it was kind of very unformalized and now I'd say everything I know has been frantic googling in meetings books podcasts and and that's 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 been the grace degree in business Well, this is something I really got, but I just want to quickly ask you about IBM because I've worked Mm. in big corporates as well. Yeah. And I see that now almost as a blueprint of what not to do because it's not working hard, hardly working. It's appearing to work hard, hardly working. There's a lot of being at your desk for a certain amount of hours, maybe more hours than are expected of you because you want to look good to your boss, but actually Mm. not being massively productive. And and it's also not encouraged to increase productivity because the idea of productivity is not seen as output in minimal time. It's seen as existence at the work desk. Um, And so I I completely agree with that. And I think it's really interesting. And I don't, you know, don't get me wrong. The whole placement of being at IBM taught me a lot. um, And I'm very, very, very glad I did it. And I think, you know, there was a lot of excitement that came out of that. And I was, yeah, yeah, I kind of learned a lot. Um, But beyond that, I completely, (laughs) I do agree. (laughs) I think, you know, when I run my own organization now, a lot of, I spend a lot of time thinking, how can I make sure we genuinely live and breathe, take, you know, learning other people's roles taking into account where they're saying something's too tedious and could be done better this way, um, encouraging that forthcoming of, you know, just sharing of information and sharing more about each person's role. Because I think if you don't encourage that, and I think I was overly ballsy as an intern, so I kind of would go to my boss and be like, this takes three hours and is ridiculous because it does not provide that much value. We can do it better by this. And and that, I mean, I just don't know where that came from. Um, <laughs> but, but actually, I think probably frustration because um, it was about half a year in and I kind of just said like, I now have to do this for 16 hours for three different companies and there's no reason. Yeah. Um, and so, but but now I really want to encourage that culture within my company is because if I don't know how you can do something better because I'm asking you to do something in a certain format but actually just doesn't work for you or takes you twice as long, tell me. And you mm-hmm. have to foster that culture. And if you don't continually foster that culture, then you have no hope of really maximizing that idea of productivity. And also the fact that if you increase productivity, it's not just about increasing productivity for the business and you getting more, it's also about increasing your employees' well-being because if they have more time to do things that they either enjoy within work or enjoy outside of work, you're automatically improving their quality of life. And you know, if you just want to think about it in this way, then also their work. So mm-hmm. I really think you have to live and breathe that because I think there was a period of time as well that I saw corporate as right and therefore as as we started growing as an organization I was like must replicate Mm -hmm. whereas actually it's like no (laughs) we can do things better let's talk about the Beverly University undergraduate business degree which is what we'll now be calling it (laughs) because and regular listeners will know I discovered people like Tim Ferriss probably about Mm. uh, nine years ago when I first went freelance I was very much in the corporate machine I worked for a magazine for 10 years and went uh went freelance and that was when I started to embrace things like hustle um mm. I'm a hustler baby little background on your phone yeah you know we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute but one thing that I and bearing in mind I was what 35 when I started listening to people like Tim Ferriss when I was reading your book and I was thinking about 
wow, imagine if I had come across that kind of content, which wouldn't have been available to me in any kind of accessible way, really, other than I think going to see them speak at a a lecture at Barbican or something. I wonder how that was for you in terms of, it seems as though you are very good at maybe once or twice a day reading something or engaging in something that will move you forward, whether it's an article or whether it's a podcast. And Mm. has that been a, is that a really crucial part of your journey as well? So I'm glad you think so, first of all. (laughs) And second of all, it is a necessity for me, but it is also a chore. I do not naturally wake up in the morning and think, oh, I'd love to read a chapter of a book on venture capital or like, you know, whatever it might be. Like there is not a single part of me that leaps out of bed to do that. But I recognize the value it has. And I also think one of the main things that my kind of academic background taught me was, you know, that value of putting an investment of your time into things that really teach you things or move the needle or keep you curious. Um, And so I make it something I do. But I also want to make it clear that I don't make it something I do because I love it at all. And that's not to be like, wow, Grace is so, you know, got such great discipline. It's just because also this idea of like, do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I love my job. I also work every fucking day of my life. So it's not kind of like one or the other. It's, you know, within that, there are so many things that you have to do to make your work better that you're not going to enjoy. Um, So for me, it has been about, I mean, it's literally, I didn't kind of, it was really important to me to have a comprehensive reading list at the end of my book and to, with kind of other, um, other kind of resources as well. Um, And that was because, you know, the main places I'd get these books from or these book ideas from was (laughs) infographics on Instagram, um, kind of being like 10 books you should read if you have a business. And then I'd buy them all and be like, this one's not very good. This one's good. This one's, you know, don't like this one. Um, And so, and and beyond that, I kind of, I literally, I literally, I mean, I still Google things like 10 of the best books on funding, 10 of the best books on this. And then, you know, I'll either get a sample from Google Books and then go and buy it or listen to an audiobook or listen to a podcast. But, you know, I think I think self-learning and self-education is so important. And it will be easier for some people than others, and it will be easier for me because I have a formalized like academic background. Um, but I, I still don't enjoy it. <laughs> And, and it's just something you've got to do every day. And I think it's really important. And I actually, I one of the, my main things, I actually follow a lot of these things like Business Week, Harvard Business Review, um, the inside, like all of these things I follow on Instagram. And then I forward them. I, I either screenshot them or I forward them to myself because they promote their own articles. So if I find an interesting one and then on every Monday, I'll, pr- I'll print out, I don't know why I use 100% recycled paper before people get angry. Um, I print out the articles and I read them with my morning coffee, um, one a day that week. Um, so yeah, it's a strange process, but you've got to do what you've got to do to force yourself to enjoy things. No, I think it's a really, really good process. And I, I know in my own life, it's one of the reasons why I started this podcast. It's the constantly speaking to people with experience that you would have to spend years trying to gather yourself. So let's see if we can get them to sort of share the bullet points, if you will, in an episode yeah. and allow someone to move forward. Well, absolutely. And I think that 
you know, books get a bad rap and they're not easy, especially like, especially nonfiction. They're not easy at all. And a lot of the time they're written so inaccessibly so that it sounds clever. And actually it could have, you know, it would have been even harder for them to write it in a way that was accessible. So, you know, they should have done that. But anyway, um, and kind of within that, I, you know, I say in the book as well that one of the most important things that I've realized is, you know, if you read a book, you're reading someone's often their life work or something they've spent 10 years on or something that they've you know done a huge amount of groundbreaking research into or whatever so you're able to absorb that in the time in a fraction of the time that they made that happen um and when you start looking at it like that you just realize if you think like time is money or you think that an education takes a certain amount of time or whatever it might be you get to absorb that in a fraction of the amount of time so that's very exciting and if you can use that to your advantage you're setting yourself up for success. Mm -hmm. It's very true. Let's talk about as well this idea of living to work versus working to live. Mm -hmm. Now me, hands up, I have always lived to work and I don't actually think that's ever going to change. I don't know where that was modeled. I don't know where that got embedded, but I get so much more satisfaction out of my work than maybe is potentially healthy in inverted commas. What about for you, this idea of living to work versus working to live? So in ethos and what I'd love to do, I'd love to work to live. However, as with your saying, as you're saying, I um, I don't think I'm programmed that way. And I think I've been very much programmed to uh, to live to work. So I'm getting these very confused. <laughs> My brain is not being wrapped around it. I think I'm, I'm, yeah, I think I'm very much programmed to live to work also because I get a huge amount of fulfillment and joy out of work, but I think I get less than I actually think I do. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the fact that, you know, I have always known work to be X amount of hours a week, whether it was doing things, you know, kind of working after school to be able to make a bit of money or whether it was you know working at university or whatever it might all kind of working I retook an A-level when I was at IBM kind of all of these things it's always been just like extra and that's been you know yesterday I had I finished my meetings at nine which is a, a disclaimer is not the way I usually do things at all like kind of PM. and I got home and I, I yeah and I felt so <laughs> 9 a.m imagine <laughs> nocturnal um but I um I felt so fulfilled and I felt like useful and that's a problem because if you're tying your productivity to kind of like self-worth and your like utility you are describing yourself entirely as an element of like human capital that Mm. is just existing to output and I know that I don't actually believe that but I'm not necessarily sure how to unplug that and deconstruct that and live that because I think I can deconstruct it in my brain and understand that actually an afternoon off is not a waste of time absolutely I just wrote a whole book on it but I don't think that has been absorbed into myself and my actions yet and I think it will take a lot of unlearning to make that happen agreed and actually you validated me spending the afternoon watching Heart of Dixie yesterday and I have oh good had a very productive morning but I the reason why I wanted to visit this is because I think you've made leaps in understanding this and hopefully not moving forward and having the experience I had I look back I had a job over 10 years I was the beauty editor on OK magazine I traveled mm-hmm. the world I went to celebrity weddings I went to celebrity parties I was at a five-star hotel most days chatting to a PR it was a really lovely yeah wonderful job and I can be really honest now and say I didn't enjoy it and I didn't Mm -hmm. enjoy it because it was work and therefore I didn't allow myself to yeah yeah 
I, th I think it's so true. I think that there's also this association within the idea of living to work that, I mean, there's on the one hand that work can't be good and can't be enjoyable. And this kind of also, especially within this like snowflake calling that if you, you know, that's not a real job or whatever it might be, or that you should be compensated less for arts jobs because you enjoy them or whatever it might be. There's like a lot of complication around that. And on the other hand, there's this. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. we kind of internalize the idea that work has to be work and there has to not be enjoyment. And I can, I can wholeheartedly say that I thoroughly enjoy a lot of the things I do as part of work. And, you know, one of them yesterday was the fact that I was in central all day doing these meetings and I had a dinner meeting and all of that. And it, and it's fun and it's lovely talking to people and you learn so much and you absorb so much and you get out of the inside of the business, which is where I spend a lot of my time. But also I can wholeheartedly say that I, I don't enjoy the, I love my job, but I don't enjoy lots of aspects of it. And I know that that's part of, you know, that's part of having a job. But there's also an aspect to that that you need to be able to then step away and think like, OK, well, how can I add more elements of enjoyment either into it or into the rest of my life and making sure that I am not living to work because I do X, Y and Z on the weekend, which really fulfills me as well. So I kind of, you know, within the book, I talk about this idea of um, fulfillment and like self-actualizing within and outside of work. Um, and that's something that I need to do more of as well. And we need to be able to recognize that you both can enjoy work, but it also doesn't have to be your only sense of enjoyment, but also work is still enjoyable sometimes and kind of goes round and round in circles. When I was reading the book, it felt very much that in the opening, when you talk about self-actualizing, it was as if, or the tone I got, and correct me if I'm wrong, was if you do one thing, reader, please don't, don't pass go until you've got what I really mean here. So mm. what do you, so what do you mean by self-actualizing in the work and sort of uh, not workspace? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll try and make it quite succinct. As you can probably tell, I'm not going to make anything succinct at all. Um, but the idea was based on the original idea of self-actualization and based on the fact that, you know, I don't believe I have a purpose. And that gave me a lot of trouble I think in trying to work out my job and I think especially because we've inverted this kind of like work money purpose trajectory to be the other way around and we expect that you'll step into your job and you'll love it and it will be purpose-filled because of what we see online and everything and the way I deconstructed that was to think that actually my purpose is actually made out of not having a singular purpose it's conceptualizing something with the team it's you know mentoring someone it's you know doing like these various different things and then outside of the work of work it's seeing my friends and um doing all of these things and I kind of wanted to take that a Sean 
and make it eating and make it, you know, a thing that you are doing because that removes then the end goal of reaching somewhere. The whole, I mean, it's it's based on obviously the original psychological theory from Maslow, which apparently wasn't from Maslow at all and was actually from um, the Blackfoot Nation tribe. Um, but essentially, you know, it's a much bigger theory than anything I could be dealing with. And that's what I wanted to make clear within the book as well. It's like, I'm not, you know, borrowing from this theory for fun or because I feel like I can rewrite this at all. But if there is an end goal of purpose, then it makes it incredibly hard to ever work towards that or reach that. And it means that we can never enjoy the journey over the end goal. And nowadays, when the end goal doesn't even exist, it just constantly moves. Then that just means that you know, I, if I don't, there's, I'm actually going to find this one quote I have from the um, book, um, which I kind of felt um, summed it up. Sorry, I'm just going to, yeah. So it was, um, if purpose is the goal and purpose is found through your vocation, then work is the never ending reality. And that's really what summed it up for me. And I kind of thought, alongside this as well, if it's an end goal and we're never reaching end goals, then how can we make that something that is, constantly along the way. And that's where I came up with the idea of the um, the verb of self-actualizing rather than reaching that kind of self-actualization. Sorry, that was the worst and longest explanation ever, but essentially about the journey rather than the end goal. Um, and to, to enjoy that journey, it is about filling little bits of purpose or little bits of self-actualizing into your everyday within work and outside of work. Otherwise you have no hope of creating this kind of like end goal of having reached this big like self-actualization superior thing that we're just not you know we're not going to get there and by our very nature if we do get there we're going to want more Mm -hmm. well this is the thing wanting more so someone can land their dream job someone can land their dream salary but then once it's a reality you have to have another goal I mean, otherwise, um, for me, for me personally, how I'm wired, I can't imagine getting to that place as a Hollywood ending as a destination, and then thinking, mm. "Brilliant, tick! I'll just live the rest of my life in this state of euphoria." It yeah. doesn't exist. So it's then setting the next goal. Yeah, absolutely. And within the book, I talk about um, this idea within the frame of the the happiness trap, which the happiness trap, not by me at all, um, essentially says that you know we we think that we're going to get to happiness but actually you can't experience happiness in the everyday without also experiencing the other full range of emotions and when we take that and look at something like you know success or reaching this end goal of purpose or whatever then we start to see the same thing you know we have to have this full range of emotions or full range of feelings of, you know, success, not success. One day you'll feel successful. One day you'll you really fucked up a project or whatever it might be. And if we deny that and we think that there'll be this end goal, often driven as well by aspiration online and what it looks like to be successful, then we're just never going to create the right boundaries for ourselves when it comes to success in order to be able to actually reach it because you don't allow yourself to reach it because when you reach it, you're not going to think you've reached it, um, especially now within this kind of comparative culture. So that for me was important because I was being like, oh, why do I never feel successful? And I was like, oh, you never feel successful because you never, never allow yourself to feel successful. You never internalize your success. You're always looking for the next thing. So don't suddenly expect that when you'll get to some age or you'll get to some milestone 
that that will end and you'll just be fine. I think now, I think when I think about it, the only way that would happen is if I got to that point and I was completely burnt out. And that's not good either. And that would be the only way that I'd be like, okay, well, I'm not going to do more with this or I'm not going to do more with that. And that's just my nature. And obviously different people will be different. And some people are able to be very content and settled when they reach a certain point. I know that I'm not one of those people. And I think a lot of people around me, no matter what type A, type B, whatever personality people they are, also feel the same. So I think we have to set ourselves up for success as in terms of viewing success as differently, not as an end goal, mm -hmm. as something that we constantly course correct, that we constantly change, that we constantly acknowledge when we've reached one. Because if we're constantly going to go for the next one, then we at least need to have that recognition in the first place. Otherwise, like, what's the point? Yeah, it's this false ideal that you will plateau at euphoria or at a mm. heightened positive emotion, which I mean, I think the very nature of plateau would mean the definition of plateau would mean that, that the two, it's an oxymoron. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that also within it, there'll be a predisposition to have this view of success if you're someone who's even thinking about what success is for you. Because if you're the type of person who thinks about like, how will I reach success? And I need to get to this thing. You're also probably the type of person who also will not accept that as an end goal, because once you've proved to yourself, you can get there, you want to get further. So I think that also, I know that, you know, I was talking to very certain people in that book. If you pick up, pick up that book in the first place, you're a certain type of person. So I kind of feel like we could discuss these things openly as well by being like, Okay, yeah, you might think that, for example, for me, Forbes 30 under 30 was a huge goal of mine. And I was, and this is genuinely, genuinely, I was so shocked that I even got there, but also that I got there at the age I did and don't, you know, I mean, I screamed, it was so strange. And I kind of thought, like, looked at the other people and was like, how am I here? And with the next day, I can't remember what I was working on, but I literally remember the next day being like, what are you, like, allow yourself to enjoy it because this is, ne you're never going to have an end goal. And, and that really started to hit me because I was like, God, am I ever going to be just like content? And I was like, no, <laughs> you're not going to be content because of some area of success. You're going to be content because you make yourself content at these pit stops or during the journey or whatever it might be. But don't suddenly think that future you is better than current you in terms of defining those boundaries. Start understanding what you're like and start putting those boundaries in place in order to feel yourself to be able to recognize that success yeah it's that thing isn't it of looking constantly it's great to have a goal it's great to have a destination but if you only keep your mm. eyes focused on that you're not going to enjoy the scenery and the scenery might be littered with things like Forbes 30 under 30 or whatever else it yeah might be. exactly and there's also within that too the fact that actually analyzing not just what success is for you but also why that is success for you. What do you associate that with? Is it money? Is it happiness? Is it freedom? Is it time? And understanding those things, because otherwise, if you're setting end goals as kind of just end goals, then it's also very hard to enjoy the journey as you get closer and closer and closer to that, because it's just a pit stop. It's just a stamp. It's just a medal or a an accolade or whatever and you need to be able to say as well the kind of association you have with that too is it a feeling is it a as I say a freedom is it a lifestyle um and that will always change too and I think this this constantly changing thing is good we should encourage it you know it's it's part of not settling 
but sometimes we also need to be able to learn to settle. And I think that if you can harness the ability to not settle and to settle, you're on to something successful. Like you're on to something really bird. great. And uh, yeah, exactly. But currently, I can't. I only know how to never settle. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And that served me very well. But we have to talk about the flip side of that too, in terms of like, okay, well, does that mean you're never happy or you're never content or you're never able to just sit back and enjoy it? And I, I mean, it's a great problem to have. It's a good problem to have, but it still, it still provides kind of conversation and analysis. Absolutely. Now let's talk about changing actually, because one of the things that you spoke about in the book, which I thought was very interesting, was this idea of And again, you check in with yourself. You have your annual, quarterly, monthly, weekly, and daily check-ins. And one of the things you did was say, right, I really like doing this thing, but it might not be serving me anymore. So actually I'm going to do less of it. And when I was thinking about all the things that I've learned, so when I went freelance, I essentially started my own business. Yeah. I've had a lot of advice from people and things like find a niche. If it works, just lean into it. And actually progress for me personally I don't know about anyone else listening and I don't know for you but sometimes the biggest process the progress that is really notable is when you stop doing something or you make a change or you almost draw a line in the sand and say actually I'm that's not who I am anymore I'm going to do this from now on and I guess it's this idea of purpose and Mm. have you ever had people say why would you stop doing that why would you stop using social media so much for example or why would you spend more time in the office and not being more of a personality? Yeah. I mean, the biggest example for me would be exactly that. It would be social media. You know, I started a lot of my career in social media. I built platforms at the same time as I was building the businesses. Um, and I stopped that last year, the year before, potentially, maybe last year. We'll <laughs> who knows? Um, and, and concentrated a lot more on my day job what I was doing, what made me happy, what didn't make me happy, um, and worked out a way for that to become my career. And I think one of the biggest things for me was, you know, I started this when I was 18. So you wouldn't be surprised if your friend got into a career at 18 and then decided to change at 22. You you wouldn't. It's They barely even started. And for me, it was slightly different, obviously, because that was in the public eye in a way or you know it was online or it's shared and and I I had to look out for my mental health and I had to look out for what I you know wanted to be doing too entirely selfishly which I think is an important thing to do and I also was in the very fortunate position that that wasn't my job anymore you know when I decided to stop taking the large majority of brand deals and concentrate entirely on my businesses bearing in mind I didn't get paid by my businesses you know I like I I lost the majority of my income but that was an investment in my future of both and was in the fortunate enough position to have made the money that could could have kind of put me through that but it was a gamble and it was a risk and it was the fact that I need to take this risk in order to prioritize my mental health and to make sure that I'm not I haven't had a mental breakdown by the age of 25 or whatever and completely like not be able to work or whatever and and it was you know it was a serious decision for me it was a serious decision because I am not good at saying no to opportunities that are that I know I will enjoy that are going to be successful that I know will be lucrative but I you know I had to at that point and and people you know they'll they'll always be especially on that platform, there's then, you know, it's quite, it's, it's hard to see people's reasoning behind it. Um, but 
for me in that moment and in any other changes that I've made in that way for my career or for myself or my mental health or whatever it's I mean it's been such a relief and it's been terrifying at the time I mean I put it off for so long because I kind of thought actually the one thing more terrifying than doing this for the rest of my life is not doing it or having the possibility of that going really wrong um or maybe I'm just stupid thinking this because I'm in this position now and I can you know I have a huge amount of mobility and I can do a lot of things um and I'll remove myself from that and think that actually you know I'd rather just risk my mental health for all of this um but I'm very glad I did it and Mm -hmm. um for me it enabled me to I realized that also my my joy came from working with my teams and building the businesses and that's what I do on the everyday um and I'm very very lucky to do that and it's also been able to um result in a huge amount of growth because over I mean over the past year (laughs) I've been entirely you know hiring scaling building foundations working out what the future looks like for Tyler and Shreddy and um kind of making that happen and that hasn't had to be for anyone else other than myself my business and my employees Mm. and but it is this thing isn't it's counterintuitive to subtract uh, a revenue Mm. stream essentially yeah in order to focus but it will always it's about where your energy is directed. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, I was in the position to do so. So it's important for me to point out as well that this was our, you know, it's not that everyone can kind of take away, just be like, oh, I'll just quit my job and do this because I don't like it anymore. I understand. I very much understand that. And it was, you know, I was able to lose 80% of my income at that time to make an investment in what that would look like in the future but that's not the reality for a lot of people as well um and so I think that for me it was really about working out you know what I could do but also not within the book then saying well you should do this too and I think there's also this huge culture of being like oh if you don't enjoy something just like quit it like stop being stuck in your dead-end job and it's like I mean come on guys like the majority of the people like people need to need to pay their bills and need to you know they're they're, you know there's there's a lot more reality behind that than just saying do this it'll be so much better absolutely I will always I will put my hands up there and say I was the person who didn't have the fallback but who still Mm. left a job that was paying quite well because yeah because it was making me a miserable and also it was dulling my creativity. And I remember I fell asleep on the train into work. And I um, thought, if I keep going here, I'm going to miss out on some amazing opportunities. And I've listened too much to people like Tim Ferriss. And I've read all of the books. And so I actioned things that I really, I mean, I, I actioned things that I couldn't really, what's the expression? I was writing checks that my actions couldn't cash. And right. I we did it way too early but thankfully touch wood it paid off yeah I did I put my it was about where I was focusing my energy and so as soon as I changed mm. focus other things kind of flourished and I and I think that's important to you know that's very important to point out too and there'll be I know lots of people as well who have done the exact same thing and um you know it wasn't also that I'd planned it a few years in advance and be like this is what I'm going to do and then when I've made this much from this I can leave from this or you know it was it was at a real breaking point for me and it was something I really had to do um and I also know so many people who have just been like you know what leap of faith I'm going to do this but I what I don't want to say is that I you know think everyone can just jump ship um when I was in that particular position to do so 
Got you. I hear you loud and clear. Now you mentioned about scaling and uh, building a team and things like that. And I do think this is a really important part of the working story that sometimes gets missed out, particularly on a platform like social media. And I said earlier about how I leaned into this whole whole idea of I'm a hustler baby because I was Mm. self-employed for the first time and I was working really hard and I wanted it to sound kind of cool. And I wanted to lean into this stereotype of being a female entrepreneur, basically. But as I get into it, I realize, and I have friends who have built incredible businesses. And one of the most crucial things that they have done is build a team, delegate, and also mentor. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that and how that plays into your business and how you have been able to grow. Yeah. So I think a lot of it over the past year, to be honest, has been bringing in great people who know how to build businesses and it's not been that I you know we've we've grown we've grown independently and shreddy shreddy grew for the you know past few years when without kind of being like you know we had ideas and we had strategy and we put them into place and we executed them over the past year really especially with Tala a lot of it has been about kind of I don't know how to do this and therefore I'm going to get this person who can help me do this in the interim or who can help me build this team or they're going to come on board to do this. And it's just been for me about recognizing what do I envision for the company? Is it, you know, enormous and IPOing or is it a smaller company that I have as a lifestyle business or is it, you know, and kind of really understanding that and then putting those learning a lot myself in terms of how we can make that happen um because you need to have a plan and you need to be able to execute it um but also it's been a lot about finding those people who know a lot more than I do in order to grow that and in order to um yeah in order to scale and in order to um intentionally grow a company which isn't you know, it's it's not easy at all. Um, but yeah, but for me, that's kind of been the, the process over the past year. I remember about nine years ago, I interviewed Jessica Alba. So it was very much at the the birth of the Honest Company, the Honest Beauty Company. Yeah. And is it Honest Beauty now? Anyway, the Honest Company. And I remember her saying essentially that she was doing just that. So she was hiring all these uh, women into the business who had incredible business degrees and she found it quite intimidating that she was mm. not only delegating and saying please could you look after this but she also felt like maybe they would look at her and think that she was just an actress and I wonder mm. and so she basically was saying I've had to really learn to celebrate what other people have but also celebrate what I bring to the table mm. I wonder if bringing more people onto the team of you had to do that. Is that part of the self-actualizing of actually this is what I bring and this is really amazing and this person just compounds it and makes it even better? Well, I think there's an importance in realizing that you are where you are for a reason. And at any time there's something like imposter syndrome or whatever it might be, break it down and kind of say like, okay, could I, could I do this again? If I had to start from square one again, the answer is yes. Like, just stop like stop doubting yourself and like a lot of the time you can if you're really honest with yourself you do think like yeah you know what I actually could and that doesn't mean my skill set is finance it doesn't mean it's operations it doesn't mean it's even sourcing or manufacturing but I've you know been able to put some of these people together to create something great or some of these things together and really understood the product or whatever it might be and I think you know a year ago I was absolutely in that position and I was kind of thinking like oh god you know there could have been a risk of not bringing on great people on because I wouldn't want to then 
be so much worse than everyone else. But actually, you know, I was probably more concerned at the time about being like, okay, well, if we can get these great people to work for us, great, like, let's, let's make them work for us. And I'll just, you know, sit here and do all the extra things or pull everything together or keep the, you know, journey on track because I know what the brand is or I know where I want it to go or anything like that. And behind the scenes, there was definitely a lot of me that was kind of thinking like, oh God, I'm talking to this person who graduated from my university 20 years ago or, you know, did this or whatever. And I'd just be like, I don't know. But actually, that was what the strength became. Because I feel like when you are a young leader or have kind of whatever, however you want to put it, if you're able to hold your hands up and know what you can't do or know what your strengths aren't or know how great other people are, you're also able to give them the value and the responsibility and the trust that a lot of other companies aren't able to give them because it's kind of hierarchy for the sake of hierarchy. And for me, then it's always been about how can we make the best of everyone and how can we use everyone's skill set for the best? And that does not involve me micromanaging because I think I know better or because I want to assert hierarchy or because I want to show that I'm the CEO. That's not my job. My job is to know what the brand is, to know what the product is, to know what the vision is, and to make sure that is happening every single day with every new person who comes on board, everything that gets derailed, every project that happens. And if I'm doing that in a way that is kind of pretending I know more about this or kind of trying to appear like I understand everything in the finance meetings where I'm always asking stupid questions or whatever it might be, then it's just not that at all. It, it can't be that. And that's is very good at holding you down because of ego. And as soon as I realized that, I was like, okay, you know, I'm not as clever as this. I don't have quali this qualification. I'm not, you know, I don't have this experience as head of at this amazing company that I could only dream of working out. But what I do have is all of these people who want to help this this grow. So I like, get over it, <laughs> make it happen. Um, and, and I think that also when you're able to say that it's not, it's not a pretend thing. I'm not pretending. Um, and when you're able to say that to the people you are working with, then it also, I mean, it's, it's just creates an honest and open workspace where they can also say, you know what, I don't know how to do that. But if you'd like me to own that, then I can find mm -hmm. out or can we work on it together? Or can I have this person help me? Um, and so I do think that is one of the benefits probably of, of knowing knowing that you don't know anything <laughs> well I, I mean I did a lot of business training before I got into journalism so I did like sales courses and whatnot and my memory of all of those things was being trained around saying I'm sorry I don't know and I screwed up mm. Mm. that you never said those things in the workplace when actually yeah. as I get older and as I have uh, matured I would like to think in business I realize they are sometimes three of the most important things you can say yeah no absolutely and I think that I started realizing that every time I wasn't saying those and but it was true then I was doing myself a disservice because I was just setting us up for failure and at and the same time I was creating a culture where people thought that they needed to do the same and so that stopped pretty quickly <laughs> and now I know my strengths and I know where I sit as well and I know why the business has to have me too so you know there's there's benefits of both sides and I think it's just about that honesty
Grace, it was so nice to chat to you. Thank you so much. The book is an absolute revelation. And I do think it's a must read for anyone, regardless of your job, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, whatever it might be. Thank you so much. That's really kind. And I've loved chatting. Same. Um, Listeners, the show notes will contain all the links to Grace and the book. But for now, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Grace and me. If you would like to get in touch with me, please don't hesitate. Email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can send me a DM on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you would prefer to chat to me, but also thousands of other fellow listeners of this podcast, then go to the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and click the link to join the Facebook forum and you will be welcomed in with open arms. Genuinely, I cannot wait to see you there. Come and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.